0: Part 2. Behaviors to Adopt Behavior. Noun. 1. The way in which one acts or conducts oneself, especially towards others. Good behavior. 2. The way in which an animal or person acts in response to a particular situation or stimulus. Synonyms. Conduct. Deportment. Bearing. Actions. Doings. Your behaviors are the way you act day in and day out. Your behaviors are your habits. They manifest in the actions you take, the words you say, and the way you live your life. What is most important to understand about your behaviors is that they are a choice. They don't feel like a choice because the vast majority of your behaviors are made without conscious thought. They're habits that have ingrained themselves in your life. But they are choices we make, whether consciously or unconsciously, which means every single day you choose to be this person, whether you realize it or not. You choose to believe what you believe and accept what you accept, and these behaviors can either help you immensely or harm you without you ever really knowing it. Now that we've let go of the many excuses that hinder us from pursuing our dreams, we need to take some steps toward them. This section is a list of the behaviors I adopted that helped me get to my goals, and I hope they'll help you do the same. Behavior 1. Stop asking permission. Okay, sisters, I know not everyone is comfortable with the word feminist. As I mentioned earlier, feminist simply means that you believe men and women should have equal rights, but I understand there's a world of other meanings wrapped up in the word for many women, and I'm not trying to convince you otherwise. I only bring it up now because this chapter is going to feel like the most feministy feminist words you've ever heard from me. And if that's not your cup of tea, your inclination is going to be to skip this chapter. Don't skip this chapter. You absolutely don't have to burn your bra on the streets, but you are a grown woman and you owe it to yourself to consider this idea. This chapter is not about men versus women and how we should navigate the disparity. This chapter is about the truth that most cultures have been set up since the beginning of time as patriarchal. This means that in most societies, men have more power or all the power and therefore more control. It doesn't matter whether you believe this is good or bad, natural or misguided. Girl, you do you. But for the purposes of this book and chasing down your goals, it matters that you at least consider how this kind of structure might affect your belief in yourself. After all, if you were raised to believe that men know best, that men are the authority, how much faith does that teach you to have in yourself and your opinions as a woman? I was on a business trip recently and stopped by a bookstore in the airport to grab something for the plane. I ended up picking up this incredible book called Women and Power, a manifesto. It's a really interesting study of the history of women speaking publicly, not women speaking, but women being allowed to, or rather not allowed to, speak in public forums. You should absolutely check it out. It's a rich history and well-written, and you can read it in two hours. Personally, I've never really studied, and so therefore never focused on, how little access women were once given to use their voices or offer their opinions. Oh sure, I've read all about the suffragettes and how hard women fought for the right to vote, but I never stopped to consider the long history of pain and torture and even death that happened in the hundreds of years leading up to that time. There is this incredible part in the book that I thought was so powerful. It was the idea that for most of us, the voice of authority in our lives growing up was male. And if we grew up and started working or grew up and married a man, then it's possible that the voice of authority stayed male. The person in charge, the person who told you what to do, who told you what was right and wrong, often was a man. If that man was good and wise and had your best interests at heart, then that might have instilled the belief in you that he knew best. That's powerful enough on its own. But what if that man in your life wasn't good? What if he was hurtful or cruel? What if he had his best interests at heart instead of your own? He was still in charge. He still got to make the decisions, and he still got to affect your life. There's this saying that's been around forever, if you don't see it, how do you know you can be it? If your example of right was always male, do you think it would occur to you naturally that you, as a woman, have the authority to be whoever and whatever you want to be? Do you think you'd easily come to believe that you have the right and the power and the might to pursue your own dreams just for yourself? or? Do you think it's possible that you might seek permission or even approval from people other than yourself because that was your normal? I was raised with a voice of authority that was male. My daddy is a strong and very forceful personality, and he demanded total obedience. I learned to live in hope of his approval and terrified of his displeasure. Then I met my husband when I was 19 years old, and though he is a very different kind of man, I can recognize in retrospect that I transferred my feelings about my father to my husband. I was utterly codependent. I lived every day to please him and make him happy, and if he was unhappy, even if it wasn't about me, it was crippling. I would drown in anxiety until I could do something or say something to change his mood. I remember about seven years ago, he'd had a bad day at work, and he was really frustrated when he got home. I went immediately into fix-it mode. I was like, can I make you a drink? Are you hungry? You want to watch a movie? You want to have sex? He looked at me very firmly but very kindly and said, Rachel, I'm in a bad mood, and I'll get over it. It's okay if I'm upset. You don't have to make it better. It's not your job to make sure I'm happy. Holy crap, you guys. It was a freaking epiphany. It really never occurred to me that I should just let him process his feelings, and it wasn't my job to fix them. I had been raised in a house where we did everything possible to keep Daddy happy and I didn't know there was any other way to be. Consequently, when I began to understand that the entire purpose for my life wasn't to please someone else, I began to consider things I hadn't before. Like, what if I could make decisions for myself? What if I stopped making every choice in my life about what would please others most? What if sometimes I just did what I wanted to do? What if I stopped asking permission? I didn't even realize I was doing it back then, but for the first probably 10 years of my marriage, I had asked Dave's permission to do everything. Not because he had told me to, but because that's what I thought was normal, and I brought it into our marriage with me. Do you care if I go to the grocery store? Do you mind if I have dinner with Mandy on Thursday night? Hey, is it cool if I eat the last of the Girl Scout cookies? I did this years before we had children, so this wasn't even like a, hey, I want to do this activity and I'm going to need you to cover childcare sort of thing. This was me seriously needing his sanction to do anything in my life because I didn't want my desires to inconvenience him in any way. I look back on those years and I thank God that I married a good man. It would have been so easy for him to take advantage of me or abuse the power he had over me if he had been inclined to. Friends, if you're listening to this, I'm going to assume you're a grown-up woman. Grown-up women don't ask permission. There is absolutely a way to be your own person while also being a part of a great relationship with someone else. It is absolutely possible to manage your priorities your responsibilities, and your personal desires in a way that stays true to you and the people you love. It happens when you stop asking permission to be yourself. It happens when you stop caring more about what they think of your dream than what you think of your dream. It happens when you put more value into your self-care than you put into whether they'll be inconvenienced by it. You're allowed to want to be your best self, to pursue your dream, even if they don't understand it. You're allowed to push for something more, even if they don't like it. You're allowed to take time away from your kids, even if it's an inconvenience to the person who has to watch them. You're allowed to do something, even if it makes your partner uncomfortable. You're allowed to tell people who you are and what you need instead of first asking if they're all right with it. You're allowed to simply exist without permissions or opinions or qualifiers. I'm trying to recall when I first heard the term girl boss. Certainly, it reached the heights of popularity when Sophia Amoroso published her book. At the time, I lined up to buy it like every other self-respecting, self-taught female entrepreneur. Reading her story was inspiring and motivational, and I honestly didn't give much thought to the title because I was so fired up to read what was inside. But then I started to see the term and the subsequent offshoots everywhere. Hashtag girl boss. Hashtag boss babe. Hashtag entrepreneur her. Women of every age and background picked up the moniker and ran with it. It became a popular trend on social media that still hasn't died down years later. It's part of the vernacular now. It's tossed around at conferences and has become a title that young women in entrepreneurial studies programs aspire to. And it makes my blood boil. I want to stand on a soapbox and rant about this particular topic and how it plays into the male voice of authority, but instead, I'll ask a question. Do you know what it means to qualify something? I ask because when I was younger, I don't think I would have stopped to consider the pet name of "girl boss" for women like me. I would never have questioned what a hashtag might say about women in business in general, When I bring up the act of qualifying something in panel discussions at one conference after another, only a handful of people respond saying they do know about it. And so I read the definition aloud. Qualify. Verb. 1. To modify, limit, or restrict as by listing expectations or reservations. 2. To make less harsh or severe. Moderate. Before coming to run my company, my husband was a high-level executive at one of the largest media companies on the planet. He led a worldwide team of more people than I can keep track of. He worked his way up from an assistant with drive and determination. He also never, not one single time, had someone give him a label for the work he does based on his gender. To qualify the term boss, by adding girl or babe or honey or pink or whatever other ridiculous, antiquated gender role assignment the media thinks is cute this month, is at the least disrespectful and at the worst damaging to the way young women view themselves and to our fight for equality in the business world. And the worst part is, women are the ones who are perpetuating this. Women are the ones who are stamping this label on stationery and t-shirts and pinnable quotes, all under the guise that it's helpful and inspiring to a younger generation. On some level, they're right. Owning or running a company or a team is inspiring to a younger generation. But if our daughters have the courage and grit to pick up that baton, don't belittle their efforts by saying it's pretty good for a girl. We don't call them girl doctors, girl lawyers, girl nominees for president of the United States of America. Those positions were hard fought to achieve and they demand respect. So does this. Being a boss has been one of the greatest privileges and challenges of my life. Being a boss takes guts and tenacity. Being a boss takes hustle and strength. Getting to the level of boss takes hard work oftentimes harder than it takes for our male counterparts because in many industries we're fighting our way into a boys club. You might call that kind of person a rebel, a rogue, a leader, but there is nothing gender specific about it. I bring it up now because I want to remind you that you do not need anyone's permission to be yourself, and you also don't need to conform and twist and rebrand your goal to make it more palatable for them. You don't need to present yourself in a certain light to be loved and accepted. The people who deserve to be in your life will care about who you, the real you, actually are, even if it takes some getting used to. Even if you're different from every other woman they know, even if you're different from the woman they fell in love with, be the kind of woman you want to be. Be the kind of woman who is proud of herself. Be the kind of woman who has so much love inside her that she won't be tempted to change herself in order to get love from others. Be the kind of woman who focuses more on being interested than on other people thinking she's interesting. Be the kind of woman who laughs loudly and often. Be the kind of woman who is generous. No matter how much money is in your bank account, you have a wealth of resources to offer others. Be the kind of woman who spends a lifetime learning because knowledge is power. And those who think they know it all are often the dumbest among us. Be the kind of woman both your 11-year-old self and your 90-year-old self would be proud of. Be the kind of woman who shows up for her life. Be the kind of woman who understands that she was made for more. Be the kind of woman who believes that she is capable of doing amazing things in this world. Be the kind of woman whose own dreams make her nervous and then go ahead and do them anyway. Be the kind of woman who never asks permission to be herself. Behavior two, choose one dream and go all in. Here's the thing I believe about a goal that often annoys people. You can only focus on one at a time. You can only focus on one at a time. If there were a way to put emojis into an audiobook, you better believe there'd be a little aggressive hand clap in between each one of those words. This one is aimed at all my dreamers who are like, I want to author a book, but I'm also a singer-songwriter. And I'm thinking about getting my real estate license. And also, I want to work with homeless animals and start a charity to bring endangered species into senior citizen homes to comfort the aged. No. First of all, even if your list isn't quite so elaborate, even if all the things on it support one another, even then, it's not going to be effective. If it were effective, it would have worked already. Secondly, that list isn't one filled with dreams. That is a list filled with some cool ideas. You need to understand the difference. When I say dream, I mean something you greatly desire. I mean that you're fantasizing about something and imagining what it would be like regularly. I mean that when you think about it, your heart beats faster and your palms get sweaty like an Eminem song. Mom's spaghetti. Many people won't get the Eminem joke I just made, but that's okay. Three people did, and as long as someone understands my humor, that's all I care about. Back to the dream versus great idea thing. When people list off the 19 things they're dreaming of, my response is always the same. Which one makes you most excited? If you could choose only one of them to work on for the next decade, which would it be? If only one of them could be successful, which would you choose? The thing is, they always have one. Always. But they surround their single greatest dream with a bunch of great ideas. They list out all sorts of possibilities because that way they can say it's all just for fun. That way their options are endless. That way if chasing the dream becomes too difficult, they can quit and tell themselves it wasn't what they truly wanted anyway. See, if you only pick one dream, there is no plan B. If you want to take the island, burn the boats. If you want to actually achieve your dreams, you can only pursue one at a time. I believe completely in going all in on one single dream. And when you achieve that one, then you can move on to the next. But splitting your attention is splitting your focus and your energy, which means you're not likely to make much progress. When it comes to personal growth, women often approach it like a buffet. They want to work on a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They reason that all the areas of their lives are important, and so they should try to fix them all at once. Maybe that's possible for some people, but I can tell you what's worked for me. In contrast, is focus. I have a whole life outside of the pursuit of my dreams. So do you, I assume. I've got a marriage and children and a career and groceries and dishes and a thousand other things. I don't have time to waste time. If I'm going to fight for my right to pursue something new for myself, I need it to be as effective as possible. And to be effective... It's got to be totally focused. In the past, whenever I set out to start my diet and my exercise program and finally write my novel, my energy and enthusiasm wouldn't survive the week. There were too many priorities, too many things to keep track of. I got overwhelmed easily and couldn't keep up with it all. When everything is important, nothing is important. I found success when I learned to focus, and focus requires choosing one thing. It's hard for first-timers to commit to only one area when they're passionate about growth. What they don't realize is that a goal is like a harbor. When the tide rises in the harbor, all the boats rise. This amazing thing happens when you start to grow in one area of your life— other areas improve with it. If you drop a handful of pebbles into a lake, you'll move the water around a bit. If you drop a boulder into a lake, meaning if you put all your energy into one area, the impact is incredible. The ripple effects of that choice spread out in all directions. For clarity's sake, I'd like to mention that it's very possible to grow in multiple areas of your life once you've achieved success in one area and established it as a habit. For instance, I am able to maintain my health and fitness regimen while pursuing a new goal because health and fitness are habits in my life now. But if I had tried to conquer them simultaneously— or attempted to take them on while starting my company let's say i wouldn't have been successful the question then becomes how do you decide how do you pick the right thing to focus on next well if you're me you narrow it down using a process i like to call 10101 if you've never heard of 10101 before that's because i made it up but I did trademark it because it's a good idea and I'm not a dummy. Like most things in life, I figure out a process that works for me, and when pressed to explain it, I write it out and give it a snappy title. See, my entire publishing career. 10 years, 10 dreams, one goal. Who do you want to be in 10 years? What are the 10 dreams that would make that a reality for you? Which one of those dreams are you going to turn into a goal and focus on next? 10, 10, 1. Let's look at it a bit more closely together. 10 years. I like to encourage people to start by closing their eyes and imagining the best version of themselves. Imagine that a decade of time has gone by and you are living your best possible ideal for yourself and your life. Dream big. Don't put any restrictions on it. Don't overthink it. Just allow yourself to envision the most magnificent possible future version of yourself. A decade in the future. What is the very best version of yourself doing? What does she look like? How does she go about her day? How does she speak to people she loves? How is she loved in return? What kind of clothes does she wear? What kind of car does she drive? Is she a great cook? Does she love to read? Does she love to run? Get as specific as you possibly can. Where do you go on vacation? What's your favorite restaurant to eat at now that your life is different? What kind of food do you consume? What does it feel like to go throughout your day? Are you optimistic? Are you encouraging to others? After a decade of working on yourself and growing as a woman, how much joy is there in your life? Who's in your life? What's your week like? How do you treat people? How do they treat you? Just let your dreams run absolutely wild. Are you happy? Are you energetic? Are you driven? Do you feel ambitious? What's your relationship like with your family members? Do you own a home? And what does it look like? Do you have kids? Do you have a family? Are you married? What's the best of the best? Now, go bigger. What's a bigger version of the best version of you? Living every day in the best state that you know how to be. What do you do for work? What is the highest value that your future self holds? Is it family? Is it loyalty? Is it growth? Be as specific as you can be. Now, without a second of judgment or overthinking it, I want you to write down everything that you just thought of as fast as you can. I don't want you to forget any of it. I want that future version of you to be seared inside your brain. The best version of me is, when I'm at my best, I don't hold back. This is not the time to think it through or tell yourself to slow down. This is not the time for realistic. This is the time to think as big as you can possibly go. Hopefully, this exercise helped you paint a clear picture in your mind of a lot of different awesome things your future self can take part in. Personally, I like to do this once or twice a year and create a vision board, like in fifth grade when you glue a bunch of magazine clippings to poster paper, so I've got a visual to go along with my mental imagery. That is the first step. That's you. In 10 years. Now, here's how you narrow it down. 10 dreams. Turn your 10 years into 10 dreams. If those 10 dreams came true, they would make your vision a reality. So if you saw a future that was completely financially free, maybe your dreams would be things like making a six-figure salary, being completely debt-free, etc., But maybe your future dream self is also healthy and happy and energetic. Add becoming a marathon runner and a vegetarian to the mix. The important thing is, again, to be specific. The list of dreams is how that future vision manifests for you. Often when we do this, we come up with more than 10, but it's essential to narrow it down. Focus matters, remember? Choose 10 dreams that if they were to come true, would make your future self real. Now, here's the key. Write down those 10 dreams in a notebook every single day and write them as if they've already happened. I do this every day of my life because I want the repetition to instill in my head and my heart where my focus should be. I want to remind myself who I should be. I write them as if they've already happened because I read somewhere once that your subconscious focuses on what you give it. If you tell yourself and your subconscious, I'm going to make a million dollars, you don't end up focusing on the goal but on the words going to. It becomes like a to-do list for your brain. You didn't give it direction. You didn't ask your mind to help you figure out how. You only told it that you were going to do something, which isn't especially powerful no matter how big a goal you set for yourself, because you create to-do lists all the time. What makes this something your brain should take notice of? What if, instead, you told yourself, I have a million dollars in the bank? That's specific. That's an outcome. That's a direction to head. Going to is something in the future. Have is present tense, which means your subconscious starts focusing on how to make that real right now. I don't actually have a million dollars in the bank yet, but I'm working on it. Some items on my list are things that I want to achieve. Other items are things I can accomplish every day. I am an exceptional wife. That one is on my list. I write it down every day as a reminder of who I am and who I want to be. When I imagine my future best self, she's still drunk in love with Dave Hollis. In the future, he's still my best friend, and we still can't keep our hands off each other. Only now we look so much fresher because all our kids are older, and we don't have to change diapers or wake up with a teething baby. I'm careful with the words I write down, too. I don't use the word good. I don't use the word great. I use the word exceptional. When I write that sentence about being an exceptional wife every day, I have to ask myself what I did today that made me exceptional. It's a simple prompt to move me into action. It reminds me to text my husband and tell him how hot he looked in those pants or how much I love and appreciate him. That wouldn't happen if I didn't have the prompt reminding me who I want to be. Another item on my daily list is kind of obnoxious, but hey, it's my dream list, not yours. I write down, I only fly first class. If you follow me on social media, you may have some idea of how often I travel for work. It's a lot, you guys, a lot. I don't mind the travel because 90% of the time I'm on the road to give a keynote speech or motivate a bunch of conference attendees with my unique lyrical stylings and the energy of a Springer Spaniel. Public speaking is one of my favorite parts of my job, but it also requires focus and energy. It's hard to have either when you're shuffling back and forth across the country on planes. And it's hard to keep up with my current workload so that I can make all those speaking engagements when I'm sitting in coach. Also, my current workload always involves writing. I'm either writing a book or editing a book or working on an article or a post. And because it's me and I don't know the meaning of the word private, almost everything I write tends to be sensitive in nature. Do you know how weird it is to write a chapter on your sex life while a rando guy sits next to you sharing the armrest? I do. I've written on planes for years. There's no other way for me to turn these suckers in on time, and I hate not writing simply because I'm worried about what my neighbor thinks of chapter 5. That's where this dream comes into play. In my mind, first class is good for one single thing. Seat size. I don't care about their weird entrees. I don't care about the free wine. I don't even care about the ability to get on the plane before everyone else. All I care about is that in first class, I can sit crisscross applesauce with this computer in my lap. It's so comfortable. It's so far away from the next nearest person. It's the best. I know this because one time, years ago, Dave used his miles to upgrade me on a flight. Once I got a taste of the promised land, I couldn't stop dreaming about it. So I wrote the words, I only fly first class every day for months and months, which means that every day my brain accepted that as truth and helped to make that dream a reality for me. When I first started writing it on my list, we didn't have that kind of money in our travel budget at work, and just because I wanted it to be true didn't make it so— But after writing it down for six months, I had an epiphany so dumb, I wanted to punch myself in the face for not thinking of it earlier. You're going to laugh, or maybe you already know how I solved the problem because it was so obvious to you. I started flying first class because I told people it was part of my travel requirements, meaning... When companies reached out and said, hey, Rachel Hollis is the cat's pajamas and we'd love to have her fire up our sales force. What would it take to get her here? My assistant would tell them my speaking rate. And right after it, she'd add the line, plus first-class travel and accommodations. In the beginning, I was so nervous that people would be annoyed and that I'd miss out on big opportunities or be seen as a diva. But nobody batted an eyelash. First of all, when you've worked to get to a certain place in your career, it's not unusual to request perks you wouldn't have been given when you first started out. Secondly, brands could either afford it or they couldn't, but nobody got mad or sent the villagers to my house with pitchforks. Now, I get to fly in the big seats, and I arrive at each work event feeling good and productive and ready to go. In case you're wondering, I still have that line item on my list. I get to fly first class for work, but I'm not at a place with personal finances where we could do that for our family, yet. Every day, I'm reminded about where we're headed. Now that you have your 10 dreams identified, I hope you take my advice and write them down every day. It's a great way to remind yourself daily about who you want to be, but in order to get there, you've got to tackle that list with action and focus. The next step is narrowing your focus down to one goal. 10, 10, 1. 10 years becomes 10 dreams becomes one goal. Your dream is your ideal. It becomes a goal when you actively begin to pursue it. One goal. I want you to ask yourself right now, what is one goal? One thing you can do that will get you closer to the 10 years from now version of yourself the fastest. What is the one goal out of the 10 you just finished identifying that you can work on this year? Think it over, then write it down. To achieve a goal, you need to make sure you have clarity on two things. What are the specifics and how will you measure your progress? I want to lose weight is not specific. Do you want to lose 2 pounds or 100 pounds? That's specific. I want a body fat percentage of 24%. I want to save $5,000. Those are specific goals that you can measure against. I want to do better with my finances. That's garbage. You're already setting yourself up for failure, or you're setting up to give yourself credit for work without making measurable progress. Paying cash for your latte instead of using a credit card could be considered doing better on finances. But where is it getting you? If your goal is something more along the lines of, I want to save $5,000, you wouldn't have a latte at all. Your goal also needs to be measurable. You have to be able to judge whether you're making progress or getting closer to where you want to be. A lot of people also say that a goal has to have a time limit, but I don't like that for personal goals because I feel like it sets you up for failure. If you tell yourself you've got to be in shape by the end of February, and then you get to mid-February and haven't done it, you beat yourself up. The intention here is that working on your ideal self is a lifelong process to become who you were meant to be. Lifelong processes don't have a time limit. All that matters is that you keep at it. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for consistency. Now, it's not enough to know what your goal is going to be. Many of you probably knew what you wanted to achieve, and if that was all it took, you'd have already claimed it as your own. You've also got to know why you want it so badly. You need to define why it must be yours and use it as leverage to motivate yourself when you want to give up. Remember earlier when I talked about how important your why is? Why will keep you going even if you don't know how you'll get there. When I was a little girl, my parents fought a lot. These were extreme fights, punching holes in the walls kind of fights, and I would hide out in my room to get away from them. I would take myself into the only space that was mine alone, my bed, and I would escape by imagining a place where none of this existed. I would imagine a future where nobody screamed at each other. I would also imagine a future where nobody fought over money. As a child, the greatest vision I could imagine for myself was walking into a store and being able to afford anything I saw. I'm not talking about a watch or designer shoes. I mean being able to afford the brand name cereal or a new pair of jeans for school. That was the best version I could have for myself then, a home where nobody fought and the ability to afford things at Walmart. So that was my goal. And the underlying reason for it was something I remember thinking at a really early age. When I'm in charge, I can live whatever life I want. When you visualize your future, you have to know where it is you're trying to get to, and you have to give yourself some motivation to keep you on course. Said another way, you have to know your why. Why does it matter to you? It's not enough to just want to be thinner. It is enough to want to lose weight so you can be able to keep up with your kids or have energy for your life. That's leverage. It's not enough to say, I want to be rich, because I think that would be awesome. It is enough to know what it's like to go without as a kid and to promise yourself that you're never going to live this kind of life again once you have the ability to control it. That's leverage. You have to know where you're going, and you have to know your why. For those of you who start and stop, start and stop, start and stop, if you've gone off your resolution 50 times before, it's because your why wasn't strong enough. I used to smoke. I hate to even admit that to you because it's absolutely terrible. Smoking is the worst. It's so disgusting. It's so bad for your body. But I was 19 when I started. I thought that cool kids smoked and I wanted to be cool. Then, one night at the company holiday party, I was chatting with this really rad girl who worked in the PR department. She was so hip. She was hipster before hipsters existed. And that night at the holiday party, she pulled out a pack of American Spirits. If you aren't familiar with American Spirits, they are basically straight tobacco, way stronger than anything I had ever smoked before, only I didn't know that at the time. I'd been drinking too much that night, and when cool hipster girl offered me a cigarette, I didn't think anything of it and proceeded to spend the rest of the evening smoking one cigarette after another. I went home from that party and threw up again and again. Everything smelled like that cigarette. I barfed until nothing was left inside my body. I woke up the next morning in my bed wearing nothing but red isotoner socks, Best I can guess, I had gotten myself undressed down to the way I came into this world and then put on those socks for, I don't know, comfort. Then I puked for three hours before passing out. The point is, to this day, I cannot smell cigarette smoke without wanting to vomit. I never touched another cigarette again. I had had such a bad experience, had gotten to such a bad place that I went cold turkey, and had zero issues giving it up. I will never go back there again. That's leverage. You have to have the leverage. You have to know your why, or you will never make change. You have to know what to focus on, or you will never make progress. Behavior 3. Embrace your ambition. Ambition is not a dirty word. I don't know if it's because I'm in the midst of writing this book and therefore am ever mindful of the conversations playing out in media right now regarding women, but it seems one popular female author and speaker after another is commenting on the type of women we should all aim to be. This morning, I saw yet another repost of a quote on the dangers and pitfalls of ambition in women. I was angry to the point of spitting, and simultaneously, so sad. Angry because I don't think it's helpful to make sweeping generalizations about all kinds of ambition and all kinds of women. Sad because this person has a powerful platform and a voice for women all over the world, and I believe this message is a disservice that plays deeply into the narrative many of us grew up with. Can ambition be dangerous? Absolutely. I've spoken at length about my own struggles with becoming a workaholic, so I know how dangerous and unhealthy that can be. But ambition as a whole? To call it out as utterly wrong feels short-sighted and counter to the call to live into who we were all made to be. It's important to note the comment wasn't directed toward men. It was calling out the dangers of ambition in women. We need to start having a very real conversation about why we accept truths about ourselves as women that we would never consider for men. If it's not true for everyone, then it shouldn't be true for anyone. I get that many people believe differently. I get that depending on where or how you were raised, the idea that we shouldn't hold ourselves to a different standard can seem downright heretical. But just consider it for a minute. When a man wants to push himself in his career, his fitness, his faith, his education, or anything else, this is considered an asset. We want those kinds of people leading our businesses, our churches, or our governments. Ambitious people work to learn more, do more, grow more, and typically, they create opportunities for the people around them to do the same. But that's not okay for a woman? What if she's not married yet? What if she's a single mom? Is it okay for her to try hard then, at least until she's got a man to take care of her? I hope you heard the sarcasm in that last sentence, because the very idea makes my head want to explode. We need to get past the idea that certain rules only apply to certain people at particular life stages. If it's not true for all of us, it shouldn't be true for any of us. My sister in law, Heather, has been a teacher for the last 18 years. She was an All American softball player before she got her bachelor's degree in elementary education. She went on to get her master's in school counseling, all while being an outstanding leader in education and a champion for the children in her care. That desire to learn more about her work so she can be more effective at it, that's ambition, and it shouldn't be any less admirable in her than it would be in her brothers. My friend Susan is leading the charge in foster care reformation. She's changing the way we love on children and care and surround foster parents with the support they need to do this work. Her ambition is off the charts. She has ambition to open up branches of her organization in every city in the United States. She has ambition to make sure every child in foster care feels loved and known and seen. She has ambition to make sure not one more child ages out of the system, ever, ever. It's grandiose and audacious. Her brand of ambition will change the world. Another girlfriend is a stay-at-home mom who struggled for years with her weight and her self-image. Eighteen months ago, she signed up for her first 10K. Her ambition was to make it to the finish line. After she conquered that race, she signed up for a half-marathon. She pushed herself to find the time to train and the will to learn how to get herself to her goal. She finished the half marathon and will complete her first full later this fall. Her ambition wasn't to be a CEO or make a million dollars. Her ambition was to get fit and healthy so she could be a better woman for herself and mama for her kids. Her kind of ambition changed the family dynamic in her home and the way she looks at life. Ambition is not a bad thing. In fact, the definition is downright poetic. A strong desire to do or to achieve something typically requiring determination and hard work. If it weren't for my ambition and determination to create content that would encourage other women, you wouldn't be sitting there listening to this book. I mean, we're basically halfway through it right now, so if you thought it was stupid or unhelpful or boring, presumably you would have given up by now. Chances are you're still here because you're getting something out of it. But there wouldn't be anything for you to consume if I hadn't been ambitious about writing it in the first place. So much of the time, though, we can see ambition as a good thing only until it's our own, right? It's never really other people's ambition that bothers us. It's our own that feels scary. What would they think of me if they knew this was my dream? We don't care about what they think, remember? Well, what if I get too ambitious and obsessive? Why don't we worry about things that are actually happening instead of possible some days? Okay, but what if I do go crazy and chase my dream to the detriment of my family and my relationships? Crap, sister, me or someone else who loves you will come over and knock some sense into you. Are you really not allowing yourself to pursue something because of a bunch of made-up possibilities? Scratch that. Of course you are. You're scared. And I understand what it is to be scared of the unknown. But you're not going to achieve anything if you don't get comfortable with the idea of achievement. Do you have a goal or a dream? Are you trying to chase something down? Then you better get well acquainted with the idea of ambition. You need to adopt a posture of striving to grow in the ways that matter to your goals. Ambition looks like waking up early. It looks like working after the kids are in bed. Ambition looks like adopting a willingness to admit to the things you don't know and asking for help or doing the research or becoming your own best mentor. Ambition looks like you living in a way others won't, so you will have a life others can't. Are you ready to own your ambition? Behavior 4. Ask for help It's the 11th hour, girls. I was supposed to have given my publisher the edits on this book last week. I had to ask for an extension, and that extension says that this sucker is due today if I want to make my publication date. I want to stress how late in the game I am on this creative process, because then you'll understand how insane it is for me to be adding this chapter right now. Like, I'm starting a chapter brand new when I'm supposed to have this whole thing safely tucked into an email and off to a lovely gal in Tennessee so she can copy edit it. Instead, I'm going rogue. And I'm doing it because it occurred to me this morning, like a light bulb going off, that I completely forgot to include an incredibly vital behavior that you absolutely must adopt into your life. For days, I've been wandering around thinking, I know I'm forgetting to tell them something. I just know it. And then I remembered what it was. And my only excuse for it not occurring to me originally is that it's such an ingrained behavior for me now that I didn't think about it as something extra to add in. But I get your DMs and your emails and your media-based emoji-filled messages that are full to the brim with overwhelm. And I am reminded that not every woman does this. So here it is. Ask for help. Ask for some dang help. You cannot listen to the chapter on ambition and allow it to fire you up if you aren't also going to figure out what resources you need to get you there. Deciding to take adult tap dancing lessons because they light your heart on fire doesn't just require new patent leather metal-bottom shoes and a selection of Yelp-recommended dance studios. It also requires someone to watch your kids while you go to class. Ask for help. Attempting to grow to a new level in your multi-level marketing business doesn't just require classes and webinars and a sick social media presence. It also requires someone to help you around the house since you will have less time for that. Ask for help. I get it, girls, I do. I know that it feels awkward for the vast majority of us to ask for assistance. For one thing, we hate admitting to anyone, especially ourselves, that we need it. For another, we've somehow gotten this twisted idea that copping to the fact that we can't successfully do it all means that we're weak. Ha! Think about how ludicrous that is. The most powerful people in the world have whole teams that they delegate to. They're getting help in every single direction, from cleaning their houses to expanding their businesses overseas. But you, you with your fledgling business, your loads of laundry, and your two kids under four, you're the one who's supposed to navigate this all alone? Dude, no way! You've got a twisted perception of what success in any area of life looks like, and it's not even your fault either. I blame the media, or more specifically, I blame every perfectly styled, ultra-fabulous looking woman who's ever been on TV or the internet in the last 15 years who didn't tell us how much assistance it takes to keep her at that level. I blame every magazine who showed us 39 ways to brine a turkey for Thanksgiving, but didn't mention asking your sister to stay the night with you the day before so someone was there to help you with the baby while you cook for the family. I blame every Nancy Meyers movie with those dreamy houses and all-white wardrobes. Oh, sure, she showed us the zany hardship of navigating a relationship, but she never once showed the staff of people required to keep those mansions clean or those organic gardens tended while our heroine was building up her catering empire. You've likely only ever seen examples, both in real life and on screen, of women doing it all. It seems to me that women either try and handle every single thing on their own and don't admit how much they're struggling, or worse, they have help all kinds of help, and won't cop to it. Madeline Albright once said, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Well, I say, there's a special place in hell for women who have the luxury of assistance, but won't admit to other women that they do. I was watching a segment on the Today Show a couple of years back, and there was a famous celebrity there sharing her new product line. This woman had young children and a husband whose career was as lucrative and as demanding as her own. I really love this person. She's so beautiful, and she seems like such a genuinely good mama and wife. She's made a big name for herself in the lifestyle space. She has become the woman that many mamas and homemakers want to be. And when they asked her, in the course of the questions, how she does it all? As in, how did you build this multi-million dollar business and manage to parent well and be a great wifey? She looked right at the interviewer and said something like, oh, I'm just super organized. My jaw hit the floor, you guys. She went on to breezily explain how any mom can do just what she does if they apply themselves and work hard. I was so disappointed in her response. I wanted to cry sincerely wanted to cry like a baby because here's the deal this woman has a massive platform 10 times bigger than my own and on that particular morning i can't imagine how many women were watching her looking up to her and hoping for some guidance or inspiration and she evaded She had the opportunity to tell all of us what it really takes to live life and have a business at this level while raising young children, and she didn't take it. There is a 0% chance, a 0% chance that she doesn't have help. Having spent years and years working with celebrities, I'd guess she's got a housekeeper and at least one nanny, if not two. She's got to have an assistant, and because of their level of celebrity, I bet she and her husband even have some of the higher-level domestic staff you might not have even heard of before. Things like house managers and nutritionist chefs. And you know what? Good for them. I do not begrudge them a single second for their help. I just wish they'd talk about it. By not talking about it, they run the risk that it won't occur to you. If you see their perfectly prepared dinner on Instagram when you know she was at a photo shoot all day because you watched it in her feed, it might make you feel bad because you struggle to get dinner on the table even when you've been home all day. It might not occur to you that a housekeeper or a chef helped her prepare that dinner, which perpetuates the myth that you could also do it all and have it all if only you'd work harder. This is a lie from the pits of celebrity hell. Friends, women operating at the levels you'd like to be, both personally and professionally, are asking for help. Maybe that help comes from their partner. Maybe that help comes from their mama or their sister. Maybe that help comes in the form of a local college student who babysits or a local cleaning lady who scrubs their toilets once a month. There are tons of ways to get help, but to start, we need to understand that it's required in the first place before we can take the next step. Nobody does this alone. When I put it so plainly, it seems like common sense, doesn't it? But then we come across terms like self-made and start to wonder whether that's still what we should be shooting for. I love the term self-made, particularly when it's used in reference to my own success, because only I know how much work it took to get from there to here. I was the one who got up before the sun. I was the one who logged all the miles on business trips. I was the one who cried over the p and and stressed about making payroll. Me, me, me. For years, I held on to that title and the idea of doing it all on my own because it fired me up and helped keep me going when it felt so lonely on this entrepreneurial journey. In the last few years, I've realized something, though. I am self-made, and also not. It's only recently that I understood that no one is ever truly self-made because it's impossible to build big things entirely by yourself. A whole team of people helped me build my company over the last decade. A massive tribe who started out as a handful of followers told their friends about my work, and are still the greatest hype squad I know. It took family and babysitters and nannies to help keep our family afloat during the times I had to put in extra hours. It took the world's biggest cheerleader as a husband, celebrating my wins and covering my losses both financially and emotionally in those early years. It took a village, and it still takes a village— it took me raising my hand and asking for help. Hey, hubby, can you help watch the kids this weekend so I can get some work done? Hey, Instagram friends, can you share this in your social media feeds to let people know about this book I wrote called Party Girl? Hey, manager at work, I can meet all of your priorities, but not without another team member or an extension on the due date. I'm only one person. When I wanted to train for a half marathon, I asked someone on Dave's team at work if he could coach me. The only thing I knew about him was that he was a marathon runner. Ken taught me everything I know about running long distance. When I wanted to write that first book, my mom came to town many, many weekends and helped with the boys so I could write. She would show up in our upstairs bedroom with snacks at almost the exact moment I was ready to throw the computer against the wall. When this company I've built started to scale so big and so fast that I didn't think I could properly run it alone anymore, I swallowed a massive amount of ego and asked my husband for help. Do you know how much pride I had being a female founder and CEO with a high school education? A lot. Do you know how interested I was in admitting to him, to myself, or to you that I couldn't continue to lead the company and lead this tribe simultaneously? Not interested at all. But the thing is, I've learned over the last decade how easy it is to burn out, or worse, give up on your dream because you're trying to do too many things at once. So I've learned, and I ask for help. I have help, you guys. I have so much dang help, and I'm always looking for ways to free up more of my time so I can focus on my values. People ask me all the time how I do it all, and I'm happy to shout it from the rooftops. I don't. We have a full-time nanny, and we've had one since our oldest was three months old. Because of moves or additional kids added to our family, we've had three separate nannies, though not all at once, in our history as a family. These women—Martha, Jojo, and now Angie—have loved my children well and made it possible for me to pursue my career while Dave pursued his. They came in early and stayed late. They allowed us to have weekly date nights, and occasionally they stayed the night so we could get away. We have never had family nearby who could help with our children, and these women were our surrogate family. I can't imagine how we would have managed without them. Three years ago, we hired a housekeeper, full-time. We talked about and planned for years to get to the place financially where we could afford a full-time housekeeper, and it's the greatest luxury in our life. The more kids we had, the less we wanted to spend our nights and weekends doing laundry and mopping floors. We also craved help with dinners and grocery shopping and someone who would take our minivan or our mini schnauzer to get washed. I have an assistant at work as well as a team of people at the Hollis Company who support me in my business endeavors. I use stylists to pick out flattering outfits for me when I go to fancy red carpet events or on TV shows. I use hair and makeup people when I'm going to be on television, and a few times I've had a woman come to my home and give me a spray tan in my bathroom. She had a pop-up tent. I thought it was magical. If this much help seems excessive, I'd challenge you to weigh it against the level of content we've been able to push out into the world over the last five years. I wouldn't have been able to do a tenth of this work if I hadn't had help. If this much help seems unnecessary, well, dang, sis, you don't have to go full tilt like I do. But please teach yourself to raise your hand and admit where you're struggling. You don't need to be in a specific financial place to get help. You can trade with a friend or simply ask your partner for more support. You do need to be in a specific emotional place to get help. You do need to realize that while you are blazing a new trail for yourself, you you aren't required to walk down it alone. The point in all of this long and crazy rant is that if you struggle with admitting that you need help, you have to take a good, hard look at what is required to get you to the next level. If there's a time commitment involved and you already feel like you don't have enough time, you might need to ask for help. If there's a level of knowledge involved that you don't already have, you might need to find a teacher. If there's a promotional level involved, you might need to ask your existing customers if they'd be willing to help you get it out into the world. I heard once that most people who choke to death on food do it in close proximity to someone who could have saved them. It's a horrible reality. What happens is that they're sitting at a table eating with a group. And when they begin to choke, they feel embarrassed that they're struggling. Inevitably, they stand up from the table And when their friends ask if they're okay or need help, they wave them away like everything's fine. They go to another room so their struggle won't be a bother to anyone. It's not until they're alone and really fighting for breath that they realize they need assistance, but by then, it's too late. Friends, your struggles don't mean that you're weak. They mean you're human. Your inexperience doesn't mean you won't succeed. It just means you haven't yet. Stop pretending, stop faking it, stop suffering in silence, stop setting yourself up as a martyr, stop taking it all on alone and then feeling bitter about it. Stop wasting your time on activities you hate as penance for the time you want for yourself. You cannot do enough loads of laundry to make your husband support your dream. You cannot volunteer enough hours at church to make your sister understand your goals. You cannot earn your way to autonomy over your own life. It's a human right you were granted when you became an adult. If you need to, when you need to, raise your hand and ask for help, regardless of what anyone else thinks about it. There are a hundred ways to learn to swim and one very easy way to drown. And that is by being unwilling to admit you're drowning in the first place.